0: Welcome to the Indie Pub, a laid-back interview show dedicated to the world of self and indie publishing. I'm your host, Jay Rushing, author of the self-published fantasy noir novel radio and a beverage buff with a passion for deep dives and good times. Every two weeks, a guest will step into the pub with a publishing-related topic and a favorite drink for us to explore and enjoy. Whether you want to sharpen your craft, snag a new cocktail recipe, or just have a laugh, there's always a seat and a full glass waiting for you at the Indie Pub. Welcome to the indie Pub. Today's guest is Sarah Chorn, professional editor and author of *Of Honey and Wildfires and *Serafina's Lament. She's here with us to discuss representations of disability in writing. But before we dive in, tell us a bit about what we're drinking here in the pub today.
1: Well, I am drinking a Diet Dr. Pepper, but I wish it was a mojito. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm wishing. Um, yeah. But-
0: that's oh, fine. I've got, I've got one here. So we we've at least have a representative glass in yeah. the book today. <laughs> All right. So yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself and your work.
1: Um, I kind of wear many hats. I started as a book reviewer about 11 years ago uh, with mostly science fiction and fantasy, though I read a little bit of um, nonfiction historical, too. Nice. Um, and then I started editing about five years ago. Again, mostly science fiction and fantasy, but sometimes I get young adults and romance. Um, And now in 2019, I published my first book, which was Serafina's Lament.
0: And uh, that's about
1: it. Yeah, (laughs) thanks. (laughs) So
0: yeah, that's me. Nice. All right, so for our first question, across the board, minority representation is lacking in literature, to say the least. Um, How would you describe the current state of disability representation in books?
1: I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done, but it's come a long way. Even in the time that I have been reviewing books in the genre, I've noticed quite a shift in how aware people are of representation, period, in the books they read and how they're, how they're being portrayed. You know, how, how these minority groups are being portrayed and the stories that are being told. And, uh, and there's been a bigger push to present it It seems like disability representation still kind of constantly falls under the bus, though. Like, we focus a lot on representing all these other groups. But I feel like there's not quite as much focus on accurately portraying and portraying at all disabled people in, in books. So
0: I think there's a ways to go. Have you noticed if there are certain genres that tend to be better or worse than others?
1: Uh, You know, not really. There's a few tropes that I kind of find across the board regardless of genre. Okay. Um, So yeah, it it seems less a genre thing and more just a trope issue maybe.
0: Gotcha, okay. Um, What are some of the major issues you see regarding disability representation in books?
1: So there's a few things. A lot of people, well not a lot of people, I will say there seems to be a, a trend for people to tick off a box for uh, representation. Gotcha. So like the tokenized character is a huge problem. Um, the character that's just marched out to be the disabled one in the set and then they leave the screen, you know? Gotcha, uh, kind of the stock <laughs> stock
0: photo issue.
1: Yeah, exactly. That seems to be the the biggest problem I I see. Um, It seems like people try to do good research, but there's a difference between reading about something in an article or a book and then actually talking to someone who has direct experience with it. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of tell when an author has talked to someone or, or when they've just read
0: about it. Yeah. Is, is do you find is that um, I mean probably not likely you know, clinical uh, descriptions of things, but is there kind of a more sterilized uh, d- description, or or is it something else that you'll notice?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of of nonces that are just missing.
0: Mm-hmm. Like I've
1: never read this book, but the the JoJo Moyes, I think her name is. Um, She wrote a book about a a man who was paralyzed. I think it was Me Before You or something. That book was hugely problematic. But one day I found a YouTube video of a guy who actually had an injury at the exact spot of his spine that the main character had it on. And he just, you know, detailed all the reasons why this character was written wrong. Uh And the reason why is because I have this condition. And, you know, I kind of know what it's like. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he talked about how different the book could have been if she'd actually talked to people who had experience with that rather than apparently she just read about it on forums or something. Oh, so, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, stuff like that.
0: So how do you yourself go about representing disability in your own work?
1: So I am disabled. I have um, a chronic illness called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and, it's, and I have a severe spine injury and all sorts of stuff's wrong with me. But um, I try to portray disability the way I would want someone to write about me. So the important part in my mind is making sure people understand I am not a disability named Sarah. Like Ah. being disabled is just one part of who I am. It's just one part of my character dynamic. Um, and, and I think that's really important to recognize the intersectionality of not just people, but of characters. Nobody is just one thing. And if you write a disabled character, it's important to remember no matter what the disability is. There's a, a person all around that that needs to be portrayed.
0: Do you have um, specific characters from some of your works that that you could talk a little bit about? Um, kind of giving some examples of how you, how you went about doing that?
1: Yeah, in uh, Serafina's Lament, I actually gave Serafina my spine injury and my leg injury. Mm. And it was really quite an experience to write about her in in a way that it was like the first time i've ever taken my chronic pain and my experience existing in the world and tried to write about it in a way other people could understand and and it was a uh, it was quite eye opening but for me going into that i i just wanted to write about Serafina um and and write about her existing in the world in the same way I do because you know in the end of the day, disabled people deserve to be in stories too.
2: Absolutely. And
1: yeah, and and we just get ignored a lot. But you know, it's just because I hurt doesn't mean I can't kick ass. And <laughs> that's one thing I wanted I wanted to show through her story. Um but yeah, I really tried hard to show not only does her disability impact every part of her life? But it's also, it's just part of her. It's not all of her. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't go away. There's no moral to why she feels that way. It's just part of who she is. And uh, and that was hugely important to me, especially not moralizing her disability. Not Not everything happens to further the plot. It's just how she was formed
0: Mm -hmm. yeah it must have been almost an out-of-body experience writing you know all of your own feelings into a character
1: yeah it really was it was uh, it was quite interesting it was um it was something I I really struggled with at some points and a lot of her emotional journey was very much based on my emotional journey of becoming okay with being disabled.
0: Are the characters and and you, were you similar ages or did you add distance there?
1: I think she's younger about, I think I have her about 10 or 15 years younger than me.
0: Okay. Was Uh, Was that a conscious decision or just because that's the story and that's what it needed?
1: Yeah, it was just kind of the story and what it needed.
0: Okay, and so when you are working with your authors, because you're an editor as well, um, how do you go about guiding your authors when they're writing about disability, if that's an experience that you've had?
1: Yeah, usually if I come across something in a book that I'm editing, um, it's nine times out of ten, it'll be ableist language that the author just doesn't know about. It's not something a lot of people think about. Um so it's not something like i get mad about or anything it's just yeah. something that people don't notice um like like a book i edited recently uh, mentioned someone being wheelchair bound and i wrote the author and said it's not wheelchair bound it's a wheelchair user there's it's a subtle difference but it means the world to people who use wheelchairs because it, you're not bound to it it's giving them liberty that they wouldn't otherwise have. That's a good point. Yeah, and stuff like that. There's uh, been a recent discussion that I saw about um, the term turning a deaf ear to something, mm-hmm. that, which I come across a lot in books. And I'd never even thought of that before as being ableist, which probably is horrible to admit. But it wasn't until I saw that discussion that I realized, you know, this really isn't a term that people should use.
0: And yeah, I mean, it's amazing how many, you know, terms and phrases are just so ingrained and unquestioned.
1: Yeah, and and it's other things like calling something, well, that's crazy. Or, you know, someone who's acting weird, you don't agree with is a psychopath. Um, these are all terms that it's just part of our language. But as an editor, I try really hard to find them in the manuscripts and to not just take them out, but to write a note to the author that says why this is an ableist term, so they can hopefully avoid using it in books in the future. And nobody's perfect. I'm always coming across stuff that I say that I probably shouldn't, and I'm trying to be more aware of it. Yeah. But you know, at the end of the day, that's really all you can do, is become aware of it and try to learn and grow.
0: Is it something that you find comes up often in in the books that you're editing? Or is it something that you find you have to actually kind of consciously scan for? Or or does it pop out for you pretty quickly? It
1: pops out for me pretty quickly. There's usually a time that I mention something in each manuscript, yeah. So, you know, it's just part of our language and it's unfortunate that that's the way it is. But yeah, I do notice a few instances, usually at least once a manuscript.
0: Okay, so for the next question, as more and more own voices authors add, you know, their stories to the wide, wide world of books, what advice would you have for them um, as they set off on their writing journeys?
1: I, the biggest thing that I think helped me the most with how I write disabilities is to try and write my characters the way I'd want someone to write my story. So, Remembering that, and that you know, you're not just a disability. You're a person, and while well, disability might take up a good chunk of your life, like it does mine, it's not my whole life. And so, your characters need to reflect that. Don't just you know have them be a disability with a name tag, but you know, remember everybody has likes and dislikes and. You know things they find pretty and things they find ugly and flaws and stuff like that, and and it just makes the person more dynamic. And uh, and it's the same way with with characters, just you know the person, and and not just the disability.
0: Well, and that that seems like good advice, really, just across the board. I mean, if you have a character who's a basketball player. You know, yeah. they're, you're not going to write an entire story where the only thing they do, the only thing they talk about is playing basketball or or a character who is a painter or, you know, or fill in the blank. Like that, that that's just good. What would you say? That's good. Uh, just writing practice. I guess. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. Just, uh, you know, no one note characters.
0: Um, all right. So let's let's pop back to our drink real quickly. Um, I'm going to have you as a writer use a little bit of imagination. So t- turn your. <laughs> Dr. Pepper, into a mojito. Um, I want to talk a little bit about smell and taste. I do this in every episode because, as we all know, smell and taste are the most ignored senses in writing. Um, and so when you think about a mojito, what, what do you pick up? What, what are those smells and those tastes and those sensations that you get when you're having a sip of a mojito? You
1: know, I always smell the mint first. Mm -hmm. mint is just a strong aromatic herb and uh, I'm bummed because I grew grapefruit mint this year and I really wanted to drink it (laughs) try it in a drink and it's just a huge plant so I'm gonna have to
0: come back (laughs) to that but (laughs) so with with the the grapefruit mint is that so like I'm typically not a mint fan but like I find apple mint is one that I really like, but I think it's mostly because it has more of a fruity flavor than a mint flavor. Does the grapefruit mint still kind of have that poppy mint flavor or is it more of a subdued fruity version?
1: It's kind of on the same level as apple mint. Okay. But okay. It has a bit of a citrusy kind of bitter undertone hmm. it's, it's really interesting. I've never grown it before, but it is quite um, noteworthy. I'm, excited about it
0: so when you say bitter do you mean kind of like a like a a peel type bitterness like an orange peel or
1: yeah yeah just enough of that it's not like bad though no 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 it's just a little tiny undertone to the whole mint thing it kind of levels it out
0: I guess oh that would be fantastic in a lot of cocktails I bet
1: yeah yeah, I'm excited
0: about it (laughs) I bet it would make an excellent bitters probably huh ah I might have to look for that next time I'm at a plant shop
1: yeah <laughs> yeah I grow some weird
0: stuff <laughs> <laughs> nice. what 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 are some of your uh your highlights this year in, in your herb garden
1: oh man I've got like 12 different kinds of tomatoes growing oh geez cool. yeah <laughs> yeah and I have um what do I, I have a snail vine Which Hmm. isn't a vegetable or anything, but it grows these flowers that kind of look like snails, but they're bright pink.
2: Oh, that's cool. It's
1: it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's dying because of all the heat right now, so that's too bad. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, I have um, soybeans. That's my first year growing soybeans and uh, peanuts. Oh, wow. Yeah, I just kind of, every winter I go through this uh, plant catalog and I just buy all the weird stuff.
0: No, if you don't mind me asking, I I grew up in the sticks. I'm a farm boy, but I'm from the Northwest. So I've never seen a peanut plant in real life. What does it even look like? So they're kind of bushy. And the peanuts, though, they grow these
1: little yellow flowers. And then the yellow flowers, instead of dying like they would on most fruit, once the fruit starts growing, the yellow flowers grow these little like sticks almost and they huh. run into the ground and the peanut grows underground oh, from that's bizarre. the flower. Yeah, it's kind of weird. So when you dig the plant up in the fall, it's kind of like doing potatoes because you
0: have to go through the whole soil and find all the all the peanuts underground. I I assumed that they were like potatoes, but like nodules off the roots. I didn't, had no idea that they like reburied themselves. That's fascinating. Yeah,
1: It's weird. It's pretty cool.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Real quick, back to, back to the drink. Sorry. I see this is me. I tangent. I I am a a pro at tangentine. Um, So from peanuts back to a mojito, is there a a rum that you use that, that you like um, as kind of your main rum for your mojitos?
1: Now, I can't really honestly say for sure. My husband's the one who does the drinks. Gotcha. And he always buys something. I don't, I don't even know. It's like the only thing. I cook everything in this house. But the only thing my husband knows how to do in the kitchen is mix drinks. And nice. so I just leave him to it. It's his. That's him. All him.
0: <laughs> I have found that with a lot of couples. It seems like there's always the one who's the bartender in, in, in the group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's my husband. All right, popping back to our our topic today, can you give some examples of books that do disability representation right?
1: Yes. So um, I loved Borderline by Michelle Baker. I haven't read the rest of that series, but that first book just blew me away. Um, She wrote not only from personal experience, but you could tell she put a lot of thought Into how she portrayed her, her character, um, dragon mage by M L Spencer. Her main character in that book has autism. okay, And she based that one off of a lot of her experience and her son. And that was just super powerful to me to see that it was just so well done. Um, this is an older series and she's done with it now, but the Revolution series by Stephanie Salter, it's sort of a near future um, there was this disease that kind of tried to wipe out humanity and then there's genetic modifications. It's pretty political, but I thought the way she dealt with um, these different abilities and these different disabilities that she Focuses on in her series was really well done, and uh, Spellwright by Blake Charlton. His series, he has he had has dyslexia, and uh, he based the entire magic system off of his own experience with dyslexia. And I, that always sort of stuck with me.
0: Oh, that's really cool. It, um, in what way? I, I'm curious about that. Was it um, almost like using it like code or? Well, the magic system's based on words, and it's been like a hundred years since
1: I've read it. So you okay. yeah, <laughs> know, it's, it's based on on words, and the character, if I remember correctly, has dyslexia as well, and having it sort of gives him this extra ability with to use the magic system that he didn't before, or he wouldn't have had otherwise.
0: So, oh, that's a cool idea. I like that. Yeah, yeah, I- it was a good series all right. and And so, what about some favorite characters of yours that that you felt were really well done?
1: Oh man. Um, <laughs> let's see. i I will go back to Dragon Mage with M. L Spencer. That has to be the recent one that really impressed me the most. Um, Aram, in that book is protagonist, and he has autism, but she, put so many details into his experience that he just really sang to me. He was a character that seemed just so real. He leapt off the the page. And my brother is autistic. And I remember when I was editing her book, I told her a few times, this just feels so much like I'm reading about my brother. And um, when I told my brother about this book, he just burst out crying. It was so cool for him to know that there was this big book coming out that had a character that was like him and he was the center of the show. And it was it was a really powerful moment for me. Editing her book was amazing.
0: That's cool. Is Is that genre or that type of book his jam? Like, is that something he would want to read or?
1: Yeah, yeah, he is actually one that got me into science fiction and fantasy, but he had a bunch of seizures a few years ago. And um, he stopped being able to, one of the results was he can't read anymore. Uh And so, and he can't like track plots. He forgets things. He's got no, his memory is very short term. Gotcha. And Yeah, so he can't read it anymore. So we talk about stuff all the time, but um, he kind of vicariously reads through me, I think.
0: Gotcha. Give give them yeah. the good summaries and things like that. Yep, yep. <laughs> any any other any other characters that you've uh, uh, that re- listeners would notice that you really thought were uh, uh, either well nuanced or or really jumped off the page like that one did? I'm
1: trying to think, um, Linda Nagata has a series out. It's called The Red, and it's a trilogy, and it's based a lot on war. And um, I think she dealt with PTSD in their quite a bit. And it was very well done. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other one that I think this is kind of a classic science fiction and fantasy book, but it's flowers for Algernon. I don't know if that's how you say it, but it's by Daniel Keyes, And uh, it was on an audible sale a while ago. And I listened to it when I still had to go to the office for the day job. And it just, like, made me ball, that whole (laughs) book. It just just killed me. That was the saddest book I think I've ever read in my entire life. But it was amazing. Nice.
0: Yeah, I've always been a big X-Men fan. And for me, I mean, there's obviously it's not perfect representation all the time, but there are certain little things they would do that I thought were just, you know, good little windows. Like one of my favorite things is Wolverine's common line where he says, you know, it hurts every time. It's subtle and people wouldn't think of Wolverine as being a disabled character. And I'm not necessarily saying that he is, but I mean, he well, in a way he has chronic pain constantly. Like he's he's always hurting his skeletons made of metal. Like I can't be comfortable. Um, yeah. And but it's Wolverine. So he's he does his thing. You you, you know, it's it's a part of him, but it's not shown or, or Professor X is another great example where like growing up never once did I think, OK, he's cool, but he'd be cooler if he could walk like that was just not something that was a question. It's just it's Professor X. He does his thing amazingly, as is. And, and and that extra necessity or leap just wasn't a, a thought with, with that character.
1: Yeah, um, it's important to know that not every disability is is visible.
0: Absolutely. There's
1: a whole spectrum of things that you, know, you just can't see. So something like chronic pain, I don't have a, a flashing sign across my forehead that says I hurt. Yeah. But there's never a time I'm not hurting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes it impacts my life more than others, but it does impact my life. It is always there. And, you know, and, and that's another thing to bring into the character experience when you're writing disabilities is remember all the stuff below the surface. There's a whole lot of pain. There's a ton of emotion that just goes into the act of being disabled that very seldom gets represented in literature.
0: Yeah. 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 My, my, my dad has had chronic pain since I was two. Um, and that was just always, a, it was a feature, right? Like that's just, you know, dad's hurting. That's a thing that yep. happens, but then he's also all of the other things in his life and it just never, it never stood out as like the thing. And then everything else is to follow.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It, it's, yeah. it, you know, it's just one of the list of traits. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. So, Coming back to creating characters, writers are often pretty oblivious to the mistakes they make regarding representation. um, And obviously to the detriment of both their stories that they're trying to write and the readers who are are trying to read it. Um, Can you give a good example or two of a, a book or a story or a movie or it could be any media where while intentions may have been good, the execution just kind of fell through. Um, and then maybe talk a little bit about why it failed.
1: Yeah, so I thought a bit about this one. And I have a hard time thinking of an answer because I don't watch a ton of TV. I, I work, I edit, I write books. I'm always booking. Gotcha, so, gotcha. So um, one show, though, that I watched a little bit of and then it pissed me off so much I had to stop. Okay was was The Boys on uh, Amazon, especially season two. Season one was okay, but season two, I, I didn't watch a ton of it. It kind of turned me off about halfway through the first episode. And uh, I, it just felt like they were trying to be so edgy, just to uh-huh. say that they were being edgy. And it got pretty insulting with, like, feminism and... The how they dealt with uh, the gay LGBTQ communities, Um, disability bothered me. And I realized that the creators were probably doing it to make a point or something, at least I really hope that's the case. But the little bit of it that I saw just went so far into, it just leaned so hard into every pig-headed thing that it just turned me off. Like, there's a point when you just fly right on past whatever you're trying to say, and you just turn everything into a parody of itself. Yeah. And that's how I felt with that season. My husband watched it, I and I never talked to him about it, but it, was, um, it really bothered me.
0: Yeah, it seems like sometimes with that, it's almost like they don't realize they haven't earned it yet, I guess is a way to put it. Um, yeah. like, I feel like you could, you can do a lot when it comes to being dark and offensive and like making your characters do some really rough stuff, but you, you kind of have to earn it with your readers so that they know that like, there's, there's a, there's a point and that you're going somewhere with this and that it's helping the, it's like doing something in the story other than just to make people feel shocked.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, I just felt like they were doing it for shock value and you know, that's not cool. Who yeah. wants to be a point for someone's shock value? I, I don't.
0: So representation is definitely a world of nuance, obviously. And, and like what we were just talking about, that clearly had none. <laughs> yeah. um, but are there certain hard and fast rules that you would give writers um, that they could learn and implement in their own writing and stories um, to kind of just help them steer clear of, Including those off-putting or even, you know, full-on offensive situations.
1: Yeah, I suggest always being aware of ableist language, and you'll never be perfect. But you know, it's not hard to instead of say "wheelchair bound," say "wheelchair user." It's still two words. It's just two words that mean something very different to people who use wheelchairs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's a, a small example. But more than that, I really suggest that authors be aware of the fact that not every minority character has to be in your book to further the plot. So Mm -hmm. like the disability does not have to affect the plot. I was born with a chronic illness. I won the genetic lottery. There's (laughs) No reason I'm like this, aside from the fact that I was born this way, and it, I think this pressure that people feel like this person can't just be blind um is is it puts a weight on unfair weight, I guess on the disabled community because there's no reason for the way that we are the way we are. A lot of us were born this way or maybe there was an accident or you know, there's a hundred thousands of reasons why people are disabled. But I guarantee you, my Ehlers-Danlos syndrome has never given me superpowers. <laughs> and so um avoiding those tropes where the blind person is blind, but she has, you know, a sight for the future or something like that. Um The, the guy can't walk, but he's just, you know, this supernatural archer. It, it's just... It's not, it makes me uncomfortable, I think, stuff like that, because it doesn't, that's not how people live, you know, it's not how disabilities function. You don't lose something, like, I can't, I can't feel my right leg And I didn't lose my right legs feeling and then suddenly get some supernatural ability that made my whole life worth it. It just doesn't work that way. Sometimes people just hurt. Mm -hmm. And that's what they do. And and that can exist in your story. You can have a character with chronic pain. And that chronic pain doesn't have to do a thing for your plot. I promise you it doesn't. It, It can just be there.
0: It's just a thing affecting that character. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yes. Well, and so that actually brings up an interesting question. Um, because I feel like a lot of people will go in the reverse and basically will treat um, a disability as as basically just a statement. You know, yeah. B- B- Bobby uses a cane. And then the book goes on. and And mm-hmm. everything Bobby does is just absolutely devoid of the cane the cane is just mentioned once and then forgotten and never brought up again um and i feel like that's all that can also be a problem because yeah. why include that at all if you're never going to make that like a part of that character i don't, I don't know i don't know what are your thoughts on that well that falls back to the research too mm-hmm. so
1: if you If you use a cane, then you'll know that it impacts everything. Like I use a cane and it impacts how much I can carry because one hand's already being used. Um, It impacts how fast I can walk, you know, stuff. It impacts everything. But um, if you don't use a cane and you have a character that has a cane, then the research part is going to help you understand how it impacts just basic things. Like how do you use it on the stairs? How do you do this? How do you do that? Mm -hmm. Um, And, and that will make it into your book. Hopefully if you do the research, if you forget which happens and I run across this in a lot of manuscripts, then, you know, hopefully you'll either catch it on revision and go, Oh wait, he wouldn't be able to carry this because yeah. <laughs> it's too big, you know? And, and, or something, or your editor will flag it and be like, okay, remember, this is cool, but dude has a cane. So it's going to impact how this works for him. Mm-hmm. Um, But, you know, it happens. Stuff like that happens in books and hopefully it gets caught before the publication process happens. But um, yeah, it, it's, it's something that, happens a lot and hopefully you've either done your research or you have people in your beta group or your editor who is willing to catch it.
0: And and speaking of that research I mean we all have the interwebs so of course we can do our own looking up but do you have any resources um, and I'm particularly interested when it comes to uh, language resources that you would recommend for writers? Oh man. I'm sure there are websites. Um, but I,
1: I don't have any off the top of my head. No,
0: that's fine. <laughs> I, I just, yeah, you know.
1: I usually I... just try and pay attention to what people say. Um, I have a lot of friends in the disabled community and I try and really watch their conversations and see the things that bother them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think for me, that's been the best resource to use yeah and and i I'm sure there are a ton of websites if you just Google them. I probably should have before I did this podcast no 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 that, that's fine.
0: <laughs> sorry well, I didn't i I threw that question at you i didn't I didn't give you any lead time on that one <laughs> um okay so so talking a little bit more about the research, when it comes to people outside of minority groups and in this case outside of um the disability community when they're trying to get it right other other than just research are there anything uh, any other pieces of advice that you would give them um when it comes to trying to include characters with disabilities
1: yeah i suggest talking to people and Mm -hmm. and you know be kind about it um i have a character in glass rhapsody who is autistic and so I, I had a lot of conversations with my brother. I had a lot of conversations with people who have autistic kids or um, people who who are nonverbal or have nonverbal kids, stuff like that. I, I talked to so many people to make that character. And um, you have to be willing to... Uh, they have to be willing to open up, but you have to be willing to um, ask questions that might feel a little unnatural to ask. So mm. we don't really like to talk about the uh, down and dirty of people's daily lives, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's not, it's not something that's comfortable for us. But if you want to know how someone lives um, and their life is very different than how you live your life, you need to be willing to ask questions about that. I I um, have a, a contact for Glass Rhapsody, and one of the main things we talked about is uh, sometimes she gets into these states where she just can't talk. And I asked her, what do you do then? Like, what what do you do to communicate when you can't talk when you can't tell your wife that this is what's happening. And uh, she said she had a friend who made her these trolls and they each have a different face on them. So different mood face. And there's like the happy and the sad and the, and she uses those trolls to show her wife um, what her current mood is when she can't talk. And, you know, Yeah. And I thought that was genius. And so the kid in my book, because of that has mood rocks, which he uses to tell his mother what he's feeling. But that's something I never would have gotten. I never would have learned about that if it wasn't for asking the really uncomfortable question of, okay, but what do you do when you can't talk? That's not something you typically ask someone. It's not like, it's not a comfortable thing you ask someone you hardly know.
0: For sure, for sure.
1: Yeah, and and I think it's just asking questions that might be uncomfortable, might feel awkward, and asking them and being kind about them because these people are opening up for you. And um, as long as you're talking to someone who's willing to do that and you're kind and you reciprocate, Um, and your understanding and not judging them, I think it will add a ton to any disabled character you're trying to write.
0: So along those lines, there's often for people who really are putting in effort and trying to get it right, there's often a lot of anxiety around that to make sure that they don't mess up. Um, Do you have any tips for how people can mitigate that kind of apprehension and anxiety?
1: Yeah. I think, you know, I, I think just remembering that nobody lives the same experience. And so to a certain extent, we're all the other, Mm -hmm. we're all living a life that nobody else can kind of understand. Um, And, and once you kind of uh, look at it that way, you, it humanizes the whole exchange, I think. Um and and just try to do your best. Try to portray a person rather than, you know, a disability of skin. And as long as you're doing the best you can, Mm -hmm. as long as you've put in the legwork for the research and the talking to people and the sensitivity readers if you choose to have them, um, all that stuff, it will absolutely show. In the end product. Um, in the end of the day, we're all writing about people that we don't quite understand. And that's part of the process of being an author. No matter how well you plan your story, you're still getting to know all the people in it. And, and, uh, and your readers will as well. So it's a discovery, not just of your story, but it's a discovery of the people in the world around you and how they can enrich the story that you're telling. Um, It's not something that should be intimidating, though I know it absolutely can be. And there are times when you might very much worry about getting it wrong. And that's normal, too. I mean, I worry about that a lot, too. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you can just do the best you can do. Mm-hmm. And that's all any of us can do.
0: You mentioned sensitivity readers, and, and I wanted to touch on that. So... Uh... Basically, can you give us a, a, a brief description of, of the, you know, what are they? How does one go about finding one if they would like to use one, or if it's possible to use one? Um, and then if you find someone to be a sensitivity reader, how do you go about working with one?
1: So there's a bit of a debate about sensitivity readers. I am very much pro sensitivity reader. Um, I think they add a whole richness to the story. And they'll help you avoid uh, landmines that you wouldn't otherwise notice. Um, I have found my sensitivity readers pretty much just because I know people. And, gotcha. <laughs> and so I've reached out. But I see a lot of people they'll go on writing groups. And they'll ask for sensitivity readers there. Or even on Twitter, I've seen a few people call out. Um, some people advertise being sensitivity readers um some editors will also be sensitivity readers for certain topics usually it seems to be they're found through the community somehow um word of mouth or what have you and and they can be kind of expensive but i think in the end of the day they're they're worth it i have managed to a sort of trade with my sensitivity readers so I will sensitivity read their book and they'll do mine and that's how we've worked it um and that's worked for us it saves us money in the end but you know I think either working on a deal if you can or or even paying for one is just incredibly worth it you'll learn things that you wouldn't have otherwise known and your book will get a layer of realism to it that it would not otherwise have.
0: OK, so now the budgetary question for indie authors, since this is an indie show, an indie author show, or at least aimed at indie authors. For for a lot of people, you know, the obvious benefit aside, budgetarily hiring somebody is just not in the cards. Um, you mentioned a lot about just finding people to talk to. Um, But I have a question more about the actual story itself. Are there approaches to the story that can be adjusted to kind of help navigate around some of the potential pitfalls? Yeah,
1: I mean, there's limitations that's, you know, inherent in disability. So Mm -hmm. when I was making Serafina's Lament, I had to have her go on a little bit of a journey. But you know, she's based on me and I can't walk that far. So I had to figure out how that's going to work. Um, so, you know, I had to change the distances they had to walk and I had to make her part of the journey just extremely painful. Like it would be if I was walking it and when they got to where they were going, I basically took out all the stairs. Because stairs just, I mean, they're hell on earth for me. So um, those were some changes I had to make. But, you know, it's a secondary world and I'm creating it. So if I want to have a castle on a hill that has no stairs in it, I absolutely can do that
2: because mm-hmm.
1: it's my world. Um, there's So there's things like that that you can do. And I think a lot of times we get stuck in this default of of writing where the castle has to have the stairs and there's no ramps anywhere and you know stuff uh, people walk really long distances and and that's normal because we read about it a lot but we forget that it's our world we're creating it we can make it however we want to make it
2: Mm -hmm. if we
1: don't want stairs they don't have to be there so um it's, it's kind of once you realize that it's kind of empowering um has Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and she wrote an article on io9 a few years ago and it's one of my favorite things on the internet (laughs) but it's called why are there stairs in space and it's this whole breakdown about science fiction and how inaccessible it still is despite it being in the future to people who can't navigate these spaces that have things like stairs
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: it just doesn't occur to most people. They don't have to be there. Um, and and it's the same thing for just about know, any disability. There's always going to be adjustments that people have to make to exist in the world. And just remembering that as being part of the secondary world you're creating uh, is hugely, hugely helpful. And, and, you know, it's your world you can make it accessible to disabled people. There is absolutely no reason why you can't.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So just remembering that I think is, is great.
0: All right, let's pop back to our drink real quick one last time for the show. What do you find is the right mood for this drink? Like what, what's, it, what's, the, what's the, the mood that you prefer for this drink? What's the right setting? Um kind of like create a scene for us. Like if, if, if you were writing a mojito into a book, what would that look like? Oh,
1: probably summer and okay. kind of hot and uh very relaxing. <laughs> nice. Seems like a hot summer, you know, the kind of Sunday morning drink where you just kind of want the morning to go on and on. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, pretty much it for me.
0: <laughs> All right, Now are we are we talking fans on a porch or are we talking hammock under a tree or probably a hammock let's go with hammock okay okay nice (laughs) so so really really chilled out
1: yeah really chilled out
0: all right so what are some tropes situations themes or other aspects of storytelling um featuring characters with disabilities that you want to see authors explore more uh
1: you know just And in fact, just having disabilities present in a natural way, don't force them into the story, but just have them there and have them be part of your character. That's really all I'm looking for. (laughs) Don't, don't like moralize it. Don't make it this big thing. It doesn't, you don't have to put flashing lights and signs on someone just have us be present in the stories you're telling and and disability takes so many different shapes and forms and it impacts everyone differently and and we all probably know someone who who has a disability so there's no reason for it not to be there at least in some form um and i think it would be it would be great because at the end of the day we like to read stories to explore bits of ourselves. And you know, that includes disabled people. We like to read about the person with the craptastic right leg who is still stealing the show. I just, mm-hmm. you know, it's so important to me. That's why I wrote Seraphina. That's why I put disability into my books because we deserve to be in your stories too. And I just really want to see that.
0: And next question, there's probably a lot, but is there one or two specific things you definitely want to see less of?
1: Yeah, so the mercy killing is top of my list there. yeah. yeah. I (laughs) hate the mercy killing. It's (laughs) the thing where if you want to piss me off, that's what does it. I go 0 to 60 in about two sentences. Um, I hate it. So and and for the people who don't know, mercy killing is like that trope where they'll be the person who's disabled or injured or something. And instead of you know, letting them exist, you decide, well, Uncle Tom wouldn't want to live like this, so I'm gonna go take him out back and cut his head off or something. Put him out of his mercy, you know. Um it's horrible. I mean, just think of what that's saying to everybody who relates to that character. Like, your life is not worth living, so you're more important to us if you're dead. (laughs) That's a horrible message to give people. I can't even begin to tell you how much I hate it. Um, The other one that I really don't like is the blind person who can all of a sudden see into the future or prophesy i i mean come on i just we're done with it let's have people who prophesy who can also see because Mm -hmm. it's like every blind person in a book has to have the gift of prophecy and i'm sick of it so those are my two top of my list
0: (laughs) gotcha yeah yeah. yeah i can see why um All right, so Sarah, it is Last Call here in the Indie Pub. Can you give us an indie published book or two or three or more that you want people to check out?
1: Yeah, so I've edited a few really good ones recently. Um, Ben Galley has a series that he's writing. His second book will be released in August, I think. Um, It's amazing. The first book, I believe, is called The Written. don't quote me on that. I'm okay, kind of, but yeah, um, another one that I loved, loved was Windborne by Alex Bradshaw. Um he it, that was his first book, and he wrote it with this idea of like making superheroes. Oh but well. <laughs> he, it's so cool. but he like balances out this just incredibly realized world with this emotional depth that floored me. And the writing is beautiful. The entire book is just amazing. And I think everybody who likes like Norse-inspired fantasy really should check that one out. Nice.
0: OK, same question, but for any other media, indie or not?
1: Oh, man. Um, God, what have I been watching? uh i watched the first two episodes of loki and i liked that but i'm okay. pretty sure everyone else has watched it too so um i don't watch a ton of stuff i don't like <laughs> i i literally do books all day so um you yeah, let's put loki down and and i'll pretend like i watch a ton of stuff and, maybe, okay. and loki's the
0: best nice. <laughs> All right, tell our listeners what you have going on and where they can find you and your work.
1: Okay. Um, I have Glass Rhapsody coming out on June 30th, and that is the conclusion of my Songs of Cephate series, which starts with Of Honey and Wildfires. And uh, then late in early, early part of next year, I think March, I have an Elegy for Hope coming out, which is the book following Serafina's Lament. And then also next year I'll have a book coming out called The Reason for Stars, which is going to be the first book in my Union City trilogy, which is gonna be like um gaslight gas lamp fantasy
0: with prohibition and mobsters and all sorts of stuff. Oh nice.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of
0: excited. <laughs> so so when you say gas lamp, so is it kind of twenties vibe but set more like eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, or is it twenties, twenties or thirties or whatever?
1: Yeah, it's going to be more like the 1800s. It's set in the same world as my Songs of the Fate stuff, just in the different part of it. Gotcha. So a lot of the events at the end of Glass Rhapsody will lead into this new trilogy, and you'll be able to read it separately from the other one, but if you read them together, you can do that too. Um, but yeah, it's it's Prohibition. It'll, it's kind of in an 1870s-ish type feel i guess but um yeah i'm pretty excited about that one
0: all right and any websites or socials or anything you want people to know about
1: yeah you can find my book reviews at bookwormblues.net and i'm on twitter as bookworm blues and i, I mean you can basically find me anywhere as either bookworm blues or sarah Jorn.
0: Thanks everyone for tuning in to the Indie Pub. If you like what you hear, consider giving us a like and subscribe so you won't miss any of our indie investigations or boozy banter. I've been your host, Jay Rushing, and we'll see you back in the pub next time.